There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way Hey, this is Rod Adams And it's time for another Atomic Show Today I have one of my favorite voices in nuclear, Chris Kiefer, or Dr. Chris Kiefer, as some of us like to refer to him. Chris is a medical doctor who has decided that his avocation has got to be doing whatever he can to save nuclear plants and to uh, blaze the path to enable new nuclear to happen. Welcome, Chris. Rod, it's uh, it's great to be back, and I can hear uh, your theme music playing in my head. There's a way, there's a way, there's a better way. Um, it's a theme song for me. Um, you've been a, you've been a huge influence uh, uh, throughout my journey, so it's it's an honor to uh, to be back on your podcast. Thank you. And there are some. So there's two versions of that uh, intro music, and one say the way is the Adams way, which is supposed <laughs> to be pronounced A T O M S, but <laughs> Given my last name, some people refer to the thing. I think I'm being a, being a little vain by saying my way is my way or the highway, but it's not really true. I, I do embrace the fact that there are other ways that work in certain parts of the market, but when it comes to large bulk base load and adjustable uh, on-demand electricity, there, there are a few ways that are better than splitting atoms. I do think, Even, <clears throat> just, just to take off on that, uh, Rod, I do think that does unveil a really crucial point um, because, you know, this idea that there are multiple ways and we should really discuss and reflect and have a fulsome conversation so that we do select the best way finally, um, because there's a lot of people with different expertise and opinions. Um, and I do find that the nuclear world often, um, there tends to be kind of a party line um, that is taken. And that's kind of more on the industry side. I think amongst advocates, we have lots of different disagreements. And uh, Isabel Bemeke, uh, you know, who I don't think I need to introduce uh, the, the Brazilian fashion model to her nuclear influencer, she's always saying that there's there's more petty factions within nuclear advocacy. There's more drama than there is within the fashion industry. But I'd say, <clears throat> you know, I'm probably touching this a bit today, but within the, the industry itself, there's a real sort of you know, this is the path and button batten down the hatches and get on board. Um, so, I, you know, just to reflect again on, on uh, you know, there being there being a few ways to look at things and, and taking advantage of, of all the different perspectives that we have. I think we can arrive at the, uh, the best possible outcomes. One of the things I like about the nuclear advocacy world is it is so uh, opinionated and independent thinkers. It's hard for anybody to reasonably say that we are industry uh, representatives or as a de- the some people like to say shills. Uh, we have independent thinking. We have people who have done a lot of research and done a lot of analysis and want to share that with others. So you are one of the independent thinkers in this business. What What is it that made you uh, a big fan of nuclear energy so much to the point where you started several different enterprises and advocacy groups. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, just to clarify on the shill front, um, my entire income comes from the uh, Ontario Health Insurance Program, which is our version of Medicare, basically. So I've, I've never taken a penny um, for any of the work that I do. And you're right, it, it has become a real focus of my life. Um, I've scaled back my medical practice slightly um, to about three quarters time. And I probably put about 20, maybe 30 hours a week into the podcast and all the advocacy that I'm up to. Um, so why on earth would I do that? And I mean, that entails a certain amount of sacrifice um, on behalf of some of my loved ones. Um, you know, my girlfriend that uh, comes along on uh, trips to give talks, um, you know, around the sites of potential deep geologic repositories amongst them. <clears throat> um, but, you know, I've told the story a few different times. Um, the kind of on-ramp was climate concern. Um, and, you know, discovering that, you know, beyond hydroelectricity, nuclear really is the other key enabler of deep decarbonization. Um, but then, you know, the tra- further I've traveled down this road, I've been developing a lot of other um, thinking. And, you know, <clears throat> fossil fuels are, are you know, uh, we live in a fossil fuel civilization, as Václav Smil famously says, you know, concrete, steel, plastics, and fertilizer. Um, there's a lot of naive, naivete, and I, I probably shared that in the early days of, of my activism. 
um, where, you know, let's just kind of keep all the fossil fuels in the ground and let's just go bonkers on a global mesmer plan. Um, you know, realizing that half the world's population could not be supported if we didn't turn some natural gas into fertilizer. Um, and coming to the understanding that it's not just about, um, you know, building clean energy, but building clean energy that is a functional replacement for fossil fuel services. Um, it's going to be a, a long road. Um, but again, to try and get back to your question, why am, why am I doing this? Um, you know, other angles, obviously, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor, the air pollution angle where, where I live, we, we use nuclear for 90% of the power to phase out coal that's had just massive health impacts, hundreds of premature deaths avoided, tens of thousands of hospitalizations enabled by nuclear energy. People forget that nuclear saves lives, um, you know, and also, you know, I have a young child growing up um, in Canada. I care deeply that he has a society that um, is is fruitful and bountiful and able to offer him all the opportunities that I've had. And I think we do really stand on the precipice um, of, you know, making some poor energy choices, you know, as we're seeing in Germany, which can condemn the country um, to losing its source of productive wealth, losing its its industrial sector which is in turn what creates the value to prop up a generous welfare state with lots of opportunities for education, for the arts, for everything that we sometimes take for granted in you know, rich developed countries. Um, so there's my long, uh, <laughs> long answer to your, your brief question, Rod, but you're going you're gonna to find that uh, I've got a lot to say and I'll, I'll try and be a little more brief probably. Uh, that's all right. It's a, it's a brief question with a complex and varied answer, many aspects to it. One of the things I'd like to congratulate you on in, in your efforts seem to have made at least an impact, a nudge to encourage the Ontario Power Generation uh, Company, OPG, to reconsider a decision made somewhere in the neighborhood of 2006 to 2008 about whether or not it should retain the services of the Pickering Nuclear Station and to enable it to operate for another 30 years by refurbishing it. Can you talk about their, I guess it's only about three days ago that they made the announcement they're going to extend the plant for at least another year and reconsider that refurbishment decision? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, uh, Rod, this is such a significant event um, that it is now referred to um, in, uh, in our circles as Pickering Day. And that uh, historic day is October 29th. Um, and this really does signal I think September 29th, because September 29th is in the future. <laughs> I'm a little underslept <laughs> as you've detected. <laughs> Let it be known, September 29th, Pickering Day. And and this has just absolutely massive, massive ramifications. Um, it really does signal a change in direction, I believe, for the Canadian nuclear industry. Um, you know, and in terms of um, the role that that I played and that my organization played, um, I don't want to overstate it, but at the same time, I don't think it should be understated. Um, we were the sole advocates um, for the refurbishment of Pickering going back a number of years. Um, we did run into some, um, how to put it the right way, um, some friction with elements resistance. of in even resistance, yeah, from elements of industry, um, you know, and and they're entitled to to their their opinions and the way they saw things. But we were told, you know, trying to save this plant is bad for nuclear energy. Um, this this battle is done. It's a done deal. The decision will not be changed. Um, you know, you're wasting your time. I mean, Isabel Bemicky, I think, heard very similar things when she started looking around for uh, allies uh, in the Save Diablo Canyon um, struggle. And, you know, we always think of Pickering as Diablo Canyon's sister power plant. Um but uh, we faced a real, real uphill battle there. Um, and again, not just against um, anti-nuclear environmentalists, but, um, you know, some challenges um, with elements of the Canadian nuclear industry, um, you know, and, and they had their reasons. Um, you know, there was a decision made, as you mentioned, in 2009, there was a regulator approved plan to refurbish the Pickering Nuclear Station. Um, your listeners may or may not know that CANDUs have at least a life of 60 to 80 years. Um, as long as they get a midlife refurbishment, the, the key part that needs to be swapped out is the pressure tubes, which is kind of like the reactor pressure vessel. But we decided to break ours up into a bunch of tubes for a number of reasons, which I'd love to talk about later because it's such a cool reactor design that's so suited to Canada. Um, 
in any case, uh, if those are swapped out, you get an extra 30, 40 years of operation. Um, and that means a whole lot because Pickering was, uh, sorry, is about 15% of Ontario's total power uh, generation in terms of electricity. Um, and it again, the decision in 2009 to not pursue the regulator-approved refurbishment had a lot to do with the prevailing economic conditions. We just come out of the global financial crisis. Um, demand forecasts were flat, um, you know, given the deindustrialization that had occurred because of, of that crisis and some energy efficiency elements like LED light bulbs that were rolling out. Um, natural gas was still cool. Um, not just amongst the environmentalists, but, you know, this idea that we were still burning coal at that time, natural gas is cleaner. Hey, it's dirt cheap now because of the fracking revolution that played a part in it. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, that that led to a decision not to do the refurbishment. Pickering is, you know, a smaller set of reactors. I, I say they're small modular reactors. They're 500 megawatts compared to our eight to 900 megawatt fleet at our other nuclear sites. Um, but, you know, the conditions changed as we move forward in time um, with electrification. Ontario's, um, you know, been a, a big driver of investment to Ontario is our deeply decarbonized grid enabled by nuclear and a bit of hydro. Um, we've got steel companies that are switching over to electric arc furnaces. We've got a big uptake in electric vehicles. So demand is, is skyrocketing. Um, natural gas is obviously no longer cool, particularly in a jurisdiction that no longer uses coal. Um, and lastly, natural gas is expensive these days. I mean, we've seen it as much as quintuple um, on the Henry Hub in the States. We do get some of our gas from Western Canada, but a large part comes from the Pennsylvania oil fields. I believe that's the Marcellus fields. Um, and uh, so the, the, the arguments really started to change. And we were lucky enough to have been the ones that had kept the faith over the years as the global energy crisis occurred, as those natural gas prices spiked, as electrification continued to become a, a major priority. And this idea of taking 15% of your electricity generation offline in the midst of those um, converging forces, it's almost as ridiculous as Belgium shutting down, you know, all three in the midst of their crisis, taking 10% of their electricity offline. Um, obviously, we've got a, a strong nuclear system backing it up, but you know the government um, was convinced, and it's not just convinced by the arguments we've been making. You know, pitching um, little folding tables in Dundas Square, one of our you know big cities center squares. But as an organization, um, we built ourselves up and became capable of producing an amazing policy report, uh, authored primarily by Dylan Moon, um, and. It's, uh, it's an incredibly high quality report, fully referenced, um, you know, with peer review from experts throughout the industry and the field. And we delivered um, that, that uh, policy report straight into the hands of the premier, um, the highest, you know, essentially the governor of Ontario into the hands of his key ministers of labor, of, of energy. And we did that at the right time. Um, and two months later, the decision that was made is essentially the template laid out in our report. So... Again, um, I'm very aware of um, the follies of hubris and of ego, um, <laughs> but I do think, you know, in terms of a, a real detailed analysis of, you know, the factors that came to, together to make this happen, that C40 played an indispensable role. Um, and the folks on my team, like Dylan Moon, uh, like, I'm just going to name drop a few people because they're very important, Chris Adlam, like Tom Hess, like Steve Applin, um, you know, the people that kept the faith um, when things looked really dark. Um, we prevailed. And uh, I think it's it's really changed um, the outlook for nuclear in Canada massively. Well, you know, it's not really vanity or hubris when you are able to give those kinds of credits to the, the team that you built. Uh, it's not bad for the leader to recognize that his team has done something really amazing and uh, has made a, a significant contribution to not just Canada, but to the rest of the world. So I, I want to give you props for that and your team. All of the names that you just mentioned, uh, I, I recognize some of them as being uh, active in the social media area, but I'm sure others are uh, more active in the physical area, which is just as important, if not more important in, in this kind of advocacy. Mm -hmm. One of the other factors that you might uh, not know much about because it's just recently, I, I'm intrigued by the coincidence of Monday, uh, Ontario Power Generation, and last Monday, uh, Ontario Power Generation announced a deal with Microsoft for Microsoft to purchase 
clean energy credits, which is a direct uh, analog to what's been uh, available for at least the last 15 or so years, something called renewable energy credits. And by doing so, uh, Microsoft said very clearly that nuclear is part of their clean energy strategy and that matching uh, power demand with power supply on an hour by hour basis, or even later on, even more fidelity than that using their Azure uh, data platform uh, is going to be important. And by doing so, that single announcement made nuclear plants potentially significantly more valuable uh, because of the additional income stream that can come from uh, selling renewable energy credits. There's a lot of work still to be done, uh, mm-hmm. but that announcement was made on Monday and the announcement to save Pickering or retain Pickering was made on Thursday. So th- there there has to be something uh, related in those two. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing massive shifts globally as well as domestically, but this this has, I think, particular significance. Um, the major tech companies, um, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, they all have these these net zero commitments in terms of their company's operations. Um, Apple's been as bold to suggest that already um, 100% of its energy is supplied by renewables. Of course, I mean, these are companies that run massive server farms and infrastructure that needs to be running around the clock. I understand that Silicon Valley is peppered with large diesel generators um, to ensure that that uh, server and computer infrastructure does have power, even with the flex alerts um, and the other challenges of renewable uh, weather dependent energy generation. Um, You know, Microsoft, I believe, did commission, I think Google as well, a large study looking at, you know, how they could power all their servers um, credibly around the clock, not just with um, you know, fairly uh, imaginary um, manu- maneuvers. Um, you know, in, in terms of in terms of certain financing tools, um, like like certain forms of credits. Um, and you know, nuclear did come up in some of those documents. It wasn't, I think, sufficiently um, prioritized. Um, but listen, I mean, we're in a situation, particularly in deregulated electricity markets, where nuclear is disadvantaged. Um, you know, who's getting top dollar? It's folks that are providing that peak power during peak demand. And I mean, clearly there should be some, uh, we need to incentivize that because we, we need the grid not to crash. But what's been really neglected is that baseload always on power that underpins the reliability of our grid. Um, and so moves like this uh, by Microsoft, um, I think, start to re-tilt the balance back towards something that's needed where we value that baseload production, that always on production. And of course, Baseload is exactly what a server farm is doing. It's got a 24-7 draw on the grid. Um, so this is, I think, really positive news. It's the it's also very relevant because um, I believe in in the explorations of, of using nuclear um, uh, as part of this, this way to assure truly 24-7 carbon-free uh, electricity for you know, the, the operations of these large tech companies. Prior, prior, they had not included existing nuclear. And I think that's just so important. Um, you know, we've had good news around the world recently with the EU sustainable finance taxonomy, including nuclear. The South Koreans just a week and a half ago also included nuclear. But you'll notice that existing nuclear just isn't good enough for them. Even the South Koreans, um, to qualify for that spending, you need to be using accident tolerant fuels. There's a few um, provisos in the EU as well. I think that there is a they need to have an operating deep geologic repository in order to qualify for that funding. Um, and it's yet another hurdle that's being put up for a technology that is delivering, you know, the majority of the EU's low carbon electricity, right? That is, you know, that has deeply decarbonized Ontario, um, that has done so much for South Korea in terms of energy independence and affordable energy. I mean, the Koreans, for God's sakes, have been able to build nuclear power plants cheaper than what they pay for coal. Um, so it's an encouraging move. Um, and I think the dominoes are starting to fall, Rod. And, uh, you know, I, I think... I always talk about, you know, as an advocate who arrived on the scene four years ago, that um, I stand on the shoulders of giants and, um, you know, not to put too much of a blush on your face. You're someone who's been keeping the faith back from the beginning of the Internet, one of the first websites (laughs) I'm aware of. Right. So, um, you know, just to you know further kind of share that the love and the credit around, um, you know, this has been a long haul. 
Um, it must be exciting for you. I think you you were around before the the kind of nuclear renaissance of kind of peak oil in the early 2000s. You saw those hopes dash, and you're seeing another nuclear renaissance. Um, it's got to be got to be exciting for you as well. well. I like to remind people that the real renaissance, the one that we name the nuclear renaissance after, took about 50 years to mm. get going. And mm. if you look back in history and listen to various historians. They'll give you various starting dates of that uh, renaissance. So things, major changes don't happen overnight. It does mm-hmm. take a while. And as you mentioned, the the one of the big things that derailed or delayed the nuclear renaissance was that period of very low natural gas prices that mm-hmm. I believe is pretty much over for a number of reasons. Yeah. Not the least of which is the fact that investors in natural gas infrastructure during that dozen years of exceedingly low gas prices never got any money back and they put about 300 billion dollars into building new infrastructure and it all came online to a period of very low prices for their product so they lost a lot of money and they're more disciplined as the as the business phrase is these days so Mm -hmm. they're investing as necessary, but they certainly are over-investing to drive prices to an unprofitable level. So, I, I mean, I think something that's <clears throat> so interesting is that um, in times of plentiful cheap fossil fuels, um, nuclear suffers. Um, renewables tend to be quite advantaged because, of course, they rely on that fossil fuel backup. Not just cheap fossil fuels, but you know, accessible fossil fuels. And you know, Europe um, is in the midst of you know a fatal trifecta crisis of over reliance on weather dependent renewables, over reliance on just in time natural gas, and over reliance on imports. And that pattern we've seen it's sort of been almost the I mean unofficial, but it's been the the energy plan that's been rolled out in wealthy countries around the world. South Korea, Japan, Europe, uh, the United States, um, Canada to some degree, parts of Canada. Um, and it's it's exciting to see a bit of reversal in that. But nuclear has <clears throat> historically um, experienced those renaissances at times of increasingly unavailable fossil fuels. Because again, nuclear doesn't just produce carbon-free energy, it produces energy which supplants fossil fuel services. I can't emphasize that enough. So, you know, we're seeing reverberations now of the buildup that we saw after the OPEC crisis. Um, You know, talks of renaissance occurred when we were thinking about peak oil before the fracking revolution unlocked cheap natural gas. But to bring it back to Canada and Ontario, I've just been having some very interesting discussions. Um, We're working on a a report on the past, present and future of CANDU. But in one of those conversations, it was really emphasized to me that the the can-do program in Ontario was particularly an energy security and economic development play. Um, and that's because, um, you know, we had uranium actually right here in Ontario that we were mining. We had a lot of engineering discipline and expertise. Um, we had been developing this reactor, which, you know, this technology came out of heavy water, um, which was sort of the French and, and English programs that came over to Chalk River, the world's second largest site of nuclear research at the time of the Second World War. Um, and we had this reactor concept that we quickly developed. Um, we ended up um, having a supply chain that's in basically entirely domestic because we didn't have the heavy foraging capacities. Um, we didn't have the uranium enrichment capacities. So we developed a reactor again with those pressure tubes instead of a great big pressure cooker kind of um, containment, uh, sorry, reactor vessel. Um, and that's that's really led to some really remarkable advantages. Um, and it's given us this clean energy infrastructure that has you know paid off you know, for decades and decades and decades in which we're sustaining into the future. Um, and here we are finding ourselves in a similar situation of, you know, disrupted supply chains of skyrocketing fossil fuel prices. Um, and it's exciting um, in Ontario to see, a, you know, a made in Canada solution with these refurbishments. And I think a move um, towards new CANDU, um, as well as, you know, being the world's or the West's first mover on uh, the SMR at, at Darlington. So, you know, I think with this Pickering announcement, um, Ontario really takes the crown as the most pro-nuclear um, jurisdiction in the Western world, really. Um, and we're poised to be absolute leaders. We have a government that's, you know, seems to be 100% committed to nuclear. And they had a choice between a path dependency, a, a sleepwalking into just using natural gas to replace Pickering, which was the plan. And they chose to go the nuclear route. 
because they wanted to keep the economic development here in the province. Every dollar that we spend on Kandu or Kandu refurbishment generates a dollar forty in economic return because we have the entire supply chain here and that money is just recycled. High wages played to skilled workers who spend it in their local communities. It's, um, yeah, as you can tell, I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> One of that brings up a question you talked about feeling lonely in the early days of trying to save Pickering. I assume that fairly early on, you were able to develop some allies within the unions uh, of the people who work at Pickering. Am I right there? Um, yeah, I mean, listen, my theory of change in starting a non-industry, you know, grassroots organization, you start looking around, you know, as a bit of a tactician or strategist, you ask yourself, well, who's who's my base? I'm a lonely voice out here. How do I make some friends that have similar values and want to see the success of the sector? And at first, I think there's a real temptation to, um, you're kind of drawn like a moth to the fire to the people that will argue back against you the strongest. You know, and that can be an incredible waste of your time. But I did spend probably a year trying to convince environmentalists, Green Party members, etc. It was good because it was a whetstone that really sharpened uh, the blade of my my arguments because I was forced to you know reexamine lots of different assumptions to look at every criticism of nuclear, uh, to investigate the veracity of those claims, to refute them. Um, there was no, it wasn't time wasted, but I quickly pivoted to, again, this idea of like, who is the strategic voting block? Who is the kind of core group of individuals I can build up into a movement that can then draw in more of the Canadian public because they see the social license of not just one crazy physician, nuclear advocate, (laughs) but hundreds or maybe thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people, um, who are involved in this movement. And, you know, very quickly it came to me that, Hey, I live in Ontario we have 76,000 people working in the nuclear sector. They're a potent vehicle of change. Um, They're not particularly politically active. Maybe they're a little bit stigmatized. Um, They're used to sort of just, you know, being the elephant in the room, pumping out those clean electrons, medical isotopes, cleaning up our air. Um, But let's see if we can get them mobilized and activated. And so, yes, absolutely. Um, That began reaching out to the unions. Um, Nuclear energy has got the highest union density of really any sector in Canada. Those 76,000 workers are basically all union. Um, and that means that there's email listservs. That means that once trust was built, um, you know, reaching out and, and establishing, um, you know, my values and my credibility and, and what I was fighting for, I was able to earn that trust. And, you know, for instance, one of the, the big successes we had was a House of Commons petition. So in Commonwealth countries, uh, you know, colonial countries of, uh, of Great Britain, um, there's a neat mechanism where if you get enough people to sign a petition, it's sponsored by an MP, it's read on the floor of the House of Commons, or essentially read on the floor of the House of, you know, your House of Representatives, so as to make an, an example there. And the government is mandated to provide a written response within about two months time. Um, I learned of this tactic by surveying what the anti-nuclear folks are up to because i say hey they've got years in this game um you know they let's learn from them and they've been winning Um, so far yeah so they they did a house of commons petition i said what the hell is a house of commons petition so i started investigating it figured out what it was and said well let's swap in some good pro-nuclear language and get this petition going um and our first petition got about six thousand signatures and i think a lot of them came from within you know everyday working people within the sector Our second petition on the green bond got over 10,000 signatures. It was the number two uh, petition in the economy and finance um, uh, in in the 41st sitting of our our House of Commons. Um, That's over 10% of these 76,000 nuclear workers um, and people in the sector who participated. And now with having played such a decisive role in saving Pickering, I think that base is even more energized, even more aware of their power. And, um, you know, our further campaigns on getting nuclear into the green bond provincially and federally um, are going to see a lot of success uh, because we really have started a movement um, and it's dynamic. um, It's it's exciting and it's really achieving things. And we're really bringing a a breath of fresh air, I think, uh, into into nuclear advocacy here and here in this country. Well, there's a reason they use the word movement, because when you have successes, it builds on on the previous successes and you end up getting momentum going. Yes, so yes. That's what, that's what the movement uh, idea is all about. I want to go back a little bit to your discussion about the uh, beauty of the can do heavy water uh, pressure tube reactor design. One of the real advantages it has is it is fuel flexible. Another is that it is 
uses online refueling, which is a reason why you're able to produce such great medical isotopes using that design. Can you talk a little bit more about the fuel flexibility? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They say uh, Kandu can burn dirt, basically. We actually have some uranium deposits. You know, like we have the richest uranium deposits in the world. Um, we have a mine close to 20% ore grade. But within that ore grade, you can find um, areas that are 60-70% pure uranium. And conceivably, you could make that into a pellet and put that straight into a Kandu. Like you could dig up dirt and put it into a Kandu reactor and it would make power. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, there's an incredible neutron economy because of that heavy water, right? It slows down those neutrons without absorbing them and, and you know, enables other fissions to occur. You know, online refueling was a big selling point for the Kandu, particularly back in the day when pressurized heavy water, sorry, pressurized light water and boiling water designs um, had long outages for refueling. Um, our ability to just keep putting these small fuel bundles the size of logs into these tubes and put some in one end and take them out the other, um, you know, helped with capacity factors. Of course, particularly in the States, nothing, uh, I'm not going <laughs> to bring up France right now, but in the States, you guys have gotten absolutely incredible with your outages and are achieving, you know, capacity factors that are just incredible, 92, 93%. Um, so we've kind of lost a bit of that advantage. The other advantage that Candu had was, again, we didn't need to enrich uranium. Enriching uranium uh, pre-centrifuge um, required a lot of energy, um, and uh, that was an advantage of Candu. So those things have diminished as um, big, big advantages of Candu, um, but still a really remarkable reactor. Um, and one of the things you mentioned is that online refueling a relatively like low-pressure, heavy water environment around the um, the pressure tubes enables us to put things in like cobalt fifty-nine and have it absorb some neutrons over a couple of years and turn into cobalt 60. And so our reactors right here in Ontario uh, pump out enough cobalt 60 to sterilize 40% of the world's single-use medical devices. Let that sink in for a second, right? So if you go to a hospital, the PPE, anything that you, if you put in an autoclave, which is, you know, high temperature, high steam environment, um, anything that would melt essentially is not appropriate for an autoclave. So, you know, the breathing tube we use in the ICU, the IV cannula that's put in your arm for a blood draw, um, those blood tubes, um, you know, just it's remarkable how much is, is sterilized with cobalt uh, 60. And that is, you know, something that we produce here in absolutely staggering volumes. Um, and that's, that's possible in a power reactor in a way in which it's very difficult within a research reactor, um, you know. Also, we have issues where we don't have as many isotope-producing reactors around the world as we probably should. We had one in, in Chalk River, not a power reactor. And when it went offline, there was a global shortage of, I believe, molybdenum, which is really essential for medical diagnostic imaging. Um, and so we're building more capacity, not just with cobalt-60, but also lutetium-177. You know, I, I keep being asked about what are my reasons for being so passionate about nuclear power. Well, my father... Um, who has a, a metastatic uh, form of prostate cancer, was actually treated with lutetium, um, which is now being produced in large quantities at Bruce Power. Um, there's a new isotope, yttrium. I'm going to forget on that isotopic number, but it's being looked at for liver tumors. Um, so, you know, Candu is just, it's incredible. You know what? I was asked by the media, you know, what do you say to people who oppose the life extension and refurbishment of Pickering? And I said, I just shake my head. I can't understand it because, you know, we're going to be saving uh, 5 million tons of CO2 every year, the equivalent of 5 million transatlantic flights. We're going to be keeping an enormous amount of smog produced by natural gas out of the air. Um, we're going to have an incredible economic stimulus impact. Again, every dollar spent on refurbishment generates $1.40 in returns. Um, you know, where do I stop here? And then on the health front, um, you know, not just all those clean air benefits, but also the medical isotopes. You know, we take for granted largely that you go to a hospital, you're not going to get a hospital acquired infection. They still occur. But imagine if we couldn't sterilize things as simply as an IV cannula um, or a breathing tube um, or, you know, those other single use medical devices. Uh, trust me, Rod, we use a hell of a lot of single use medical <laughs> devices. You don't want to you don't want to be um, you don't want to be reusing some of the, the stuff in terms of where we put it in your body. Yeah, I believe that. I also believe that there's an awful lot of uses for sterilization that are not being done today. Mm -hmm. Perhaps as people get more and more uh, understanding of the value of radiation and the lack of risk associated with low levels of radiation, 
they will become more accepting of sterilized food and other sterilization uh, activities. And that yeah. cobalt-60 is just an amazing uh, source of that. Of course, the other one that would be kind of cool to use would be uh, cesium-137, which would mm-hmm. be available from uh, recycling used nuclear fuel. Mm-hmm. But that's another topic because it really doesn't rep- apply too much to uh, what we're talking about today. You mentioned uh, enrichment. I know that one of your uh, major uh, suppliers of uranium, the, the Cameco, is also investing in some advanced enrichment technology because they want to expand their contribution to the entire the, or their participation in the entire fuel cycle. That's something to be to, to be thinking about, at least from my point of view. Canada's yeah. got some incredible uh, uranium resources and a lot of junior miners that are coming into the field. And one of the cool things about your financial system is you have a system in place that enables junior miners to raise funds. It's much more uh, easy for a Mm. junior miner to go public in Canada than almost any other place in the world. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, Canadian uranium, um, is, is, is a game changer. Um, I did some back of the envelope calculations, um, you know, when we were drafting one of our petitions, uh, because, you know, uranium is such a miraculous fuel, obviously. Um, you know, we have the oil sands here in Canada, which are sort of what we're known for in terms of, uh, in terms of some of our climate impacts. It's something, you know, as an OECD country, Canada has essentially not reduced their emissions, um, you know, since 2005, there's been some little ups and downs, some blips there. Um, the oil sands coming online um, was actually compensated for by Ontario getting rid of coal. It's, it's pretty fascinating. That's what's kind of held the guard. So nuclear's played a huge role there already. Um, but the the oil sands contribute about 80 million tons of CO2 every year, 80 megatons. Well, the uranium produced by Cameco, and right now, you know, we're not producing it anything like what our potential is. Um, you know, as of, I believe, 2019, when I crunched the numbers, um, we were offsetting 230 million tons of CO2 by using that uh, uranium in uh, in the domestic and international fleet. That's fully one third of Canada's total national all sector emissions being offset by, you know, a fairly underdeveloped uranium sector here. Um, we've seen, obviously, with the sanctions against Russia, a major producer of uranium, more more of, you know, finished fuels and, and enriched fuels. Um, there is an enormous opportunity for Canada to step to the forefront. Um, and absolutely, we should be um, pursuing <clears throat> enrichment capabilities um, and really expanding our mining sector. I mean, with the sort of boom and bust cycle of uranium, it certainly seems like there's still a lot of room uh, for that sector to to uh, um, to grow. And, um, you know, this is one of the one of the things as well that I, I talk to federal politicians about, because in Canada, unfortunately, we have a very... Um, two-faced approach to nuclear. Um, the government just can't make up its mind. Uh, nuclear is classified alongside sin stocks like gambling, smoking, manufacture of arms. Um, I don't believe pornography is in there, but it's excluded from our green bond financing mechanism alongside those sin stocks, right? And But at the same time, we get occasional bits of funding for advanced nuclear uh, innovation, um, we did manage to get nuclear included within the mandate of the Canada Infrastructure Bank, I think do a lot to our a- activism around this green bond mechanism. But in any case, there's enormous opportunities for Canada. Um, and I think we're on the cusp of, of politicians coming to their senses on that, um, again, as part of this global return um, and renaissance that we're seeing for nuclear energy. Yeah, the small modular reactor uh, interest in Canada has been pretty, in- pretty exciting. A number of our companies here in the U.S. have gone to Canada to get their first-of-a-kind systems license because they like the more technology-neutral process that the CNSC has. Can you talk a little bit about Ontario Power Generation's uh, small and micro-modular reactor program? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll share what I know. Um, so there was a competitive bidding process um, at the Darlington site. Um, again, Darlington is um, the site of four large candy reactors. That's Darlington A. There's a Darlington B site. We tended to always build our nuclear facilities in four or eight packs of large candy units. So there's this Candu B site, um, and it's licensed for 4,800 megawatts of new nuclear. Um, it's been grandfathered in to our new environmental impact assessment. Um, so it is a site which is permitted and ready to build. That is incredibly rare and difficult to find within North America where, you know, we have so much regulatory obstructionism for really building anything new, but particularly nuclear. So it's an incredibly valuable site. And uh, OPG has elected to um, be a first mover with SMRs, which is very exciting. Um, there was a competitive bid process um, between uh uh, the uh, GE Hitachi BWX 300 uh, terrestrial energy and I believe X energy um, yep. in the end um, OPG did select I think the most technologically conservative of those designs the BWX 300 the sort of 10th iteration of uh, their boiling water reactor um, and this is hugely significant because again China's been banging out some small modular reactors recently. Russia certainly, um, both you know, obviously in their navy, but also to power remote communities. Um, but really, in the West, um, OPG will be the first mover, and there's a lot of interest, um, particularly uh, you know in other areas of our country with smaller grids, but also in Europe, um, the Finns, the Poles, um, you know, people that are coming to their senses over energy security issues um, and maybe don't have a nuclear program up and going yet. This is a good size to get started, or maybe they're a small country with a small grid. So, um, you know, it's very a very exciting opportunity. Um, there is a, a micro-modular reactor that's being developed as well. Um, I'm going to have to confess that I absolutely hate the name of the company that's developing it. Um, it's called the Ultra, <laughs> the Ultra Safe. What is it again? Ultra Safe Nuclear? Ultra Safe Nuclear Corporation, USNC. I just, you know, I'm going to rant here for a second, Rod. But imagine that, um, you know, Boeing came up with the Ultra Safe Jetliner. How do you think Airbus would feel? How do you think all of the other jets in their fleet um, would be judged? You don't call something ultra safe. Um, that's just, I don't know, it, it may be nice marketing for you individually. I think in the end, it hurts the entire industry. And in the end, it's, it's, it's not really even good for your own design. Of course, this thing's ultra safe. It's absolutely tiny. The core is minuscule. Um, anyway, rant over. Um, <laughs> this is an exciting um, piece of technology because, um, you know, we have enormous fuel costs shipping uh, mostly diesel to very remote communities. I mean, Canada is an enormous country uh, from coast to coast, but particularly in our north coast. And we have these scattered indigenous communities. Um you know, uh, like uh, Kaluit would be one of them. Um, we have mining sites that have pretty large, you know, baseload demand for electricity. And currently they ship diesel. And the the cost of shipping diesel, I believe this was back in about 2016, up to Nunavut, which is one of our big territories, population, I think, is around 30,000, was a quarter billion dollars. Right. And it's tricky. You got to ship the stuff in before the, the ice freezes over. If there's delays or if, you know, there's issues, it, it can, you know, or the, if there's spikes in fossil fuel prices, that can really eat into their budgets. And so it's it's very exciting that we're developing, um, you know, nuclear reactors, which can, again, replace fossil fuel services. Um, and, you know, that's another exciting thing here. Um, so I hope I've given you a little bit of an overview there. But, um, you know, lot, lots and lots of, of excite, exciting things. And, you know, you know, um, Rod, probably from um, from interacting with me on social media, I'm not uh, when it comes to um, all the clean energy sources. I'm not a you know why not both. I'm a why not the best kind of guy, right? So um, you know when it comes to uh, the use of weather dependent um, resources, um, I am utterly unconvinced on a whole different number of causes, such as deep decarbonization potential, such as the true economic cost to rate payers, such as the just transition implications of building all the stuff in China and workers in uh, America and the U in Canada being, um, you know, reverting to just being temporary construction people putting up um, these installations um, with very little job protections. I could go on and on. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, what we're doing in, in, in Ontario, I really am an all of the above because I think each of these, uh, each of these strategies, new large can do, um, you know, experimenting with this X300 SMR and the micromodular reactor are all uh, very valid pursuits that have a very good sort of end use uh, business case. Yeah, I, 
I am a uh, all of the nuclear above, except I should say all of the nuclear fission above. I, I'm still a skeptic <laughs> about nuclear fusion. And I have to take a quick break and give a little disclosure here. Uh, USNC, uh, which is full name is Ultra Safe Nuclear, is a portfolio company of nucleation capital, which is uh, my current endeavor in trying to do what I can to, or do what we can, because it's not me by myself, do what we can to uh, enable new nuclear to, to come to fruition. We're, we're working real hard to both invest in some of the great companies that are developing great products and also to make it uh, interesting and exciting for others to invest, trying to create a little FOMO. Uh, but USNC is part of that portfolio. We also have a few others, and I can certainly talk about that to anybody who's willing to listen. Uh, so contact me, uh, rod at nucleationcapital.com. Okay, commercial over. <laughs> or disclosure over right? which is which is which is it? I think you managed to sneak in both uh, quite eloquently there Rod good job <laughs> yeah um you know Chris we're coming on the the time when I normally close down my podcast because I, uh, I figure I, I like to be uh drive time and except in some really unusual conditions like Washington DC area I'm just over the average drive time so uh let me give you a chance to to kind of conclude and then we'll we'll say goodbye to the audience yeah i mean uh you know rod it's as i'm mentioning it's it's a really exciting time um for nuclear around the world uh, and for nuclear advocacy we really are in a david and goliath struggle um nuclear advocates the kind of work that we've been putting in on absolute skeleton budgets or even no budgets and the fruit that we are bearing is absolutely incredible you know never forget that the so-called shills here, these these <laughs> nuclear advocates working on shoestrings are up against um, large uh, environmental NGOs like Natural Resource Defense Council, um, you know, the, uh, the Friends of the Earth, et cetera, who, you know, in the U.S. alone have an annual operating budget of $1 billion. Um, so it's, it's, I just want to point out how incredible that is because we are um, up against some stiff opposition. It's very unfortunate that it's coming from people who are apparently climate concerned or apparently uh, pro-environmental. We had a, a really beautiful thing happen here with the announcement of the life extension refurbishment at Pickering. Um, Asthma Canada uh, came out and endorsed the life extension and exploration of, of refurbishment. Now, our largest, cool. our largest anti-nuclear organization in Ontario is ironically called the Ontario Clean Air Alliance. <laughs> um, they have a uh, demonstrated background um, up until 2013 of accepting fairly large donations from natural gas companies, they advocated for coal to be replaced by gas, not nuclear. So, you know, we're really seeing the bankruptcy of the anti-nuclear arguments um, and they're, people are seeing through them. They're old, they're outdated, they're not keeping up with people's concerns and with the challenges that we're facing. So I just you know, encourage listeners, um, you know, figure out who your local nu nuclear advocates are and find ways to support them because David is rising. Um, if you want to, if you're in Canada or you want to support what we do, um, we're at, uh, c4ne.ca. That's the number sign for, so c4ne.ca. We do have a donate button. Um, but I think we have a really world-class website again, credit to Dylan Moon, um, who does so much great work for C4ne. Um, again, if you want to get inspired and, and see a good example of, of nuclear advocacy and what we're capable of, um, that's my promo over Rod. <laughs> Are you still involved with Doctors for Nuclear Energy? Yeah, that is an organization that I founded. Um, you know, I, I do have the Decouple podcast, which keeps me quite busy. Um, Canadians for Nuclear Energy has really um, taken a lot of my attention recently as well. Doctors for Nuclear Energy exists as a website. Um, we were starting to form chapters around the world. Um, doctors are really tricky to get organized. Um, probably analogous to, analogous to herding kittens. Um <laughs> Absolutely busy people, lots of priorities. Um, and so that organization is, uh, you know, a little bit um, in the deep freeze, uh, but I think really important that it exists. And we do have a membership base of several hundred physicians around the world. Um, you know, very recently I, I uh, organized a doctor or a physician's panel on nuclear waste. We went and visited the community um, where, which has the best geology in Canada. Um, and where we're considering putting our deep geologic repository. And I gave a, a talk as a physician about nuclear waste, about radiation, about the risks and benefits. 
Um, you know, just as uh, you make an informed decision before a medical treatment, I think it's very important that informed consent is obtained and that, you know, a, a scientific account of the risks and benefits are explained. So, um, you know, still very much um, active as a doctor for nuclear energy, but just uh, as you can tell, wearing a lot of hats, a lot of uh, a lot of balls in the air for this uh, juggling doctor. Well, I'm glad to hear, though, that your uh, new girlfriend will accompany you to uh, nuclear waste sites and other activities. I hope she's in the audience and, and becoming maybe a nuclear groupie. <laughs> we, we call it nuke pilling, but uh, yeah, she's, she's wonderful and supportive. And uh, thank goodness for that. All right. Hey, for everybody out there, just a reminder, I've been talking to Dr. Chris Kiefer, the uh, founder and voice that you'll hear on the Decouple podcast. He's also got Decouple Media uh, that has some video that's done by Jesse Freeston. I mean, Freeston, Jesse Freeston. And uh, he, he's famous for having accosted a few uh, ministers within Canada at, at COP26, I think. And uh, anyway, Dr. Chris Kiefer, I really enjoyed your conversation. And this is Rod Adams uh, from The Atomic Show. Take care. Great joining you, Rod. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Atomic Show. This is Rod Adams, and I've been your host for The Atomic Show for more than 15 years. Along with Atomic Insights, I've been speaking with experts in analyzing nuclear energy for more than three decades. While I'll continue to produce new content, I am also actively investing in advanced nuclear and related ventures. As a managing partner of Nucleation Capital, I'm expanding my access and getting to dig even deeper into nuclear energy companies. We're working hard to select ventures with extraordinary promise of success. They're building the advanced nuclear sector and helping expand our clean energy options. The best part is the fact that we're building a portfolio of ventures on behalf of investors like many of you. We don't just take funds from the large institutions which typically allocate to venture capital. We believe regular investors should have access to advanced nuclear for their own portfolios, so we allow people to subscribe on a quarterly basis starting as low as $5,000 per quarter. A four-quarter subscription will get you exposure to between four and six ventures. Eight quarters will get you eight to 12, which is pretty diversified exposure. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about how you can participate, please check out our website at nucleationcapital.com. That's nucleationcapital, all one word, dot com. Our fund and all the information you need to subscribe is available online. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Nucleation Insights, and join our pro-nuclear investor network to learn about select syndicated investment opportunities. If you have questions, we're happy to chat. Please spread the word. See you next time. There's a way, a way, such a better way. Today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better way. Ooh, there's a way, such a better way. Today, today. Now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way Today there's a better way